it's kind of crazy to think that nobody talks about the big picture or the full picture. They're just saying one part of it. Just like, I mean, you know, all of 2020, the big focus was all of these protests and all of this inequality. And people would ask me, well, what do you think the solution is? And what do you think about this? What do you think about this, you know, this group over here or that group over here? And I would tell people whether it's a small group or a big group or whoever, I would say, well, whether you believe that there is this happening or not, if you feel like you want to help somebody or you want to do something or contribute something, the best way you can contribute in any fashion that will be helpful on multiple levels is to find something close to you. Everybody's got like in their own neighborhood, a neighborhood that's not so far away, that's not as good. Uh, maybe it's socioeconomics are worse than yours. Maybe they've got, you know, a more problematic youth situation, whatever the case may be, right? Everybody has a neighborhood near enough to their own that's got some kind of issue. Go find an organization in that area, contribute directly instead of doing some crazy clickbait on the internet or social media or some stuff that you don't even know or you don't even know who's backing it or who's in charge of it or any of that. You, you know nothing about it other than it's on social media. You, you can go to this one that's nearby you. You can contribute. You can follow up on it because it's right there near you. And if you help somebody in a neighborhood that's near you, not only are you helping that, but if those people weren't helped, where are they going to do their crime? They're going to do it in their neighborhood or they're going to go to the next best place, which is your neighborhood. So you're kind of helping both of your neighborhoods at the same time. I do call myself Detective Stacy because I have, you know, somewhat of a difficult last name and it's just easier for the victim's families to call me that and, you know, I don't want them to be, they got enough to worry about with their state of affairs than to worry about what the heck is that detective's last name? Like, <laughs> I just, you know, it's like, just ask for Detective Stacy. Everybody knows who yeah. that is. Uh, and, so I just recently got my social media stuff kind of separated and put, I put my work stuff separate because I'm finding with some of the political things going on with these things happening, I need to get some of the stuff that's on social media to my victim's family. And yet I don't want them to be completely intertwined with my um, personal stuff. So I, I do have... Um, now an Instagram that's at detective underscore Stacy with an E and then um, a Facebook page for detective Stacy. So that um, those are now going to be totally public. So I've used them in the past for work um, and it's a good way for 
I think these families to, to be able to get what I can give them on social media. And also, you know, there are some forums where they're telling their stories. And I think that it's a good way for me to spread their stories too, without, you know, crossing that over also, which is good. Mm -hmm. um, and then, although I'm not very Twitter efficient, <laughs> um, I, I get more tagged in the tweets uh, by other people, but uh, I do have a Twitter at South LA Blonde. Um, and that has some stuff on there as well. And I have an email address, uh, Detective Stacy at iCloud. Well, Detective underscore Stacy at iCloud.com. But um, yeah, I don't really, uh, I don't know, uh, I don't know really, uh, have, I don't really have an intro, so to speak. Um, no, I think that's wonderful. I think, I think it's wonderful. I think uh, getting your social out there because I think you're so approachable. And I think if anytime somebody needed something or could help you in any way, I think having an opportunity or a vehicle to get to you is always good to have. So thank you so much for sharing that with us. I appreciate it. As we're talking to you, you're saying it's not so important to know who did it as much as it is to get the conviction in court, which leads me back to, you know, who you are and like where you started and how you got here, because we've spoken so much about the courtroom. And I think that's because that's where you originally started. When you got out of high school and you went into college, you came out with the intention of being an attorney and a lawyer. And I think I think that is a huge part of who you are today. So can you just kind of give us a background for our listeners who don't know you as, I mean, I've read this like six times because I think it's just incredible. I think you're wonderful. Can you give our listeners just a background as to who you are and how you got from Stacy at 18? I don't, I don't, I don't know how old you are, but I know I'm older than you. So, I mean, you're absolutely gorgeous. Like it just, I mean, I would love to know, I would, I would love everybody to know the steps of how you got here because I think it's just a wonderful journey. Yeah, it's a really big accidental, like falling into your calling. I think it's, it is. Uh, I grew up in Chicago as a, as kind of a just a like regular kid that was a student athlete, uh, three sport athlete, and at the end of college, um, I had a like a good dose of wanderlust and. Uh, wanted to go to law school after having a couple undergrad classes that were really good criminal law classes. Um, and it's funny, I switched my major from psych initially to criminal justice after I took the abnormal psych class. And, you know, in the abnormal psych class, everything's, you know, this crazy thing and, you know, all these wacky, you know, things you're studying about. The, the psychosis of, you know, this person and, you know, all these, you know, just nutty people. And then after that class, you're like, now psychology is the most boring class ever because there's nothing good about it. So then I ended up in criminal justice and I'm like, now they're all crazy people because that's kind of what ends up in the criminal justice system. A bunch of sociopaths and crazy people and, you know, criminal minds and, you know, that type of deal. So I end up majoring in that and then decide I want to go to law school. And then I picked a law school that had a children's rights program. There are only three in the country 
And one of them was right there in Chicago. And I kind of just was done with Chicago. I was like, ah, oh, I want to try something new. So one of them was out here in Los Angeles. And so I was like, all right, pack up all my stuff, move out to Los Angeles. And I started at Whittier Law School, which I always joke and I say not to be confused with Whittier College, where you know Nixon went, because my grandmother always would ask me, oh, that's where Nixon went. And I'm like, no, grandma, not that one. I went to Whittier Law School, not even in Whittier. And, you know, it was over there in the neighborhood of Hancock Park, where I, you know, describe now that. Rihanna got beat up by Chris Brown because that's like how the whole world remembers what that neighborhood is because we're like, oh yeah, that is, you know, that's the, how the LA, the LA society describes things. What celebrity did what on what yeah, corner? Yeah, that's pretty that's much how you right. Remember stuff. Yeah. So. And if you're older, you know, you start saying things and they're like, who? And you're like, forget it. <laughs> oh yeah. That's happening now. That yeah. definitely happens now. Um, with the new millennials that are on the job, mm. and then I'm like, oh, oh yeah, you don't you don't know that person? Mm. Mm. Okay. <laughs> so that's always a good trick. <laughs> so I started law school and kind of instantly knew this was not for me. I always was a good student, got A's, and you know had a scholarship in college even before I got my volleyball scholarship. I had an honors college stipend, so I was like, oh, I can't see reading all these pages and then doing all this and I, I don't want to do this. So I had to break it to my parents that I, I don't think I'm going to keep doing this because it was costing a lot of money. And back then it was a lot of money. And now it kind of, God only knows what it would cost now. But um, in 95, it was like 15 grand a semester. And I was like, oh, I can't do 30 grand of this and then not want to do this. So I'm going to quit after one semester. And my mom was like, no, you're not. And I'm like, yes, I am. She's like, no, you're not. Yeah, actually I am. This is my 15 grand and I don't want to do this. So quit. And I had always thought if I didn't end up wanting to do the children's rights thing after I was an attorney, I could just take the law degree and go into the FBI. And I don't know where that idea came from, except that when I was like in junior high, a girlfriend of mine, her father was an FBI agent and he took us to shoot one time, only one time, but he was an FBI agent. And, you know, at that point in time, I knew that, you know, a lot of the people that are FBI come from backgrounds of like prior law enforcement or uh, CPAs, lawyers, you know, that type of background. So I was like, well, if I don't want to do the children's rights thing, I could just go be an FBI. So after I decided to quit law school, there's all these commercials for, you know, hiring law enforcement agencies, mine in particular. And I was like, well, I guess maybe I'll just, you know, do it the other way around. I'll go to the other agency. So I started to do that process and I worked at a gym in the meantime while I was waiting for the hiring process, which actually happened really fast. And in the summer of 1996, I got uh, started in the academy. And that was just kind of like, instantly I was kind of like, this is fun. And it was like sports with guns. And I love like, that. When you said that, I was just like, oh, this is, that's a great way of putting it. 
Well, it was like, you know, people were like, they didn't like the the PT portion, you know, the physical, you know, training where you're running around doing all that. I was like, I work out every day of my life and every sport I was ever in, like that's, you know, you always conditioning, training, you're doing some sort of workout. So I was like, I can't believe I'm getting a paycheck for working out, but with guns. And then you learn how to shoot and, you know, you're climbing these walls and they actually have this like one month kind of pre-academy thing for females because a lot of females have, you know, in general, less upper body strength than men. And, you know, just the culture for women is different than men. So in order to retain more women, they, they need to prepare you better for the academy, I guess. Um, a lot of the women struggled with push-ups, pull-ups, um, climbing the wall, that kind of thing. I didn't really have that issue. But I could see why it was a necessary precursor for the academy, and that they they should do it and prepare you. Um, the actual the wall thing was a really funny thing for me because they have all these neat tricks to like teach somebody that is weaker or not as strong in the upper body to climb a wall. And it actually was harder for me being like a taller person with like wide shoulders and like kind of an athletic build to climb it that way. I'm just about 5'10". Okay. And then I have like really wide shoulders. So I actually have kind of more of like a swimmer frame body. Um, So that, but their technique didn't really work for me. The technique, if you can picture it, is like, almost like you're hanging from the wall. Like you put your hands on the top of the wall and then you let your body weight like hang down and you're almost like swinging your foot up to the top and you're using your leg to pull yourself up and over. That was harder for me than just like pulling myself up and over. Like if you're just running at it, you kind of plant your foot, you pull yourself up and climb over the top. Like like you always see in like the little military movies when you're running at the wall and you you just kind of hit it and go over. But it's, they, they actually do a good job of teaching shorter females and less strong females. It just didn't work for me at all. I was like, this is, I could have hung from that wall for like two days and not figured out how to like pull myself over (laughs) in that manner that they are teaching. And then one of the instructors came by and was like, just run at it and just, See how that goes. And I, of course, climbed it right away because they were like, that's right. not her Who body did? type. Just go. Yeah. <laughs> just go. Just run over it. Yeah. <laughs> so that, that worked better. But it just was from the beginning of getting in, I was just like, this is fun. And I just always liked it. And then they made me a squad leader, which I didn't dislike or like, but I, I got chosen. And it's not like you get to interview for it. And or say no, or apply, you know, they're like out there watching you on the, you know, the field and they're, you know, they watch you when you're running. And the problem with some of the guys that were military guys that were chosen in the beginning is they couldn't keep up with the run. And then they were like, well, when you're a squad leader, you have to be in the front of the run. So they booted the one that was in my squad and picked me and then he was like really not pleased with me and I'm like (laughs) yeah I'm like run faster than I'm like I didn't pick this job I didn't interview for it or try for it I didn't want it so 
he went to another squad because he wasn't going to be very good in mine. But it was a, uh, it was, it was good. It was fun. I, so you I really faced you. I mean, you're not one to be like, oh, the guys won't let me play. I mean, like you're you're right in there, but you you still faced it like almost from the beginning, like being a girl, being a female in this guy world, like, you know, even this little guy through his fit, like it, it started right away for you. Yeah. You know, in, in a way that's true. And I, I guess I just don't picture it that way. Sometimes. Because you don't, you're not a victim of anything. You just do what you do and you're, you're amazing. You go get it. But if someone has a problem with it, that's their problem. Clearly why like you're very similar. And I think Annie and I are, are very similar in that a, mm-hmm. a lot of ways. But it still happens. Like it's still there's still guys that throw fits when women oh, yeah. get you know above them. It's true. Yeah, For sure. <laughs> yeah. Do you get this outspokenness from your mom? Because I know when you had when you had given us a little bit of background, you, you and like I think your ability to step back it almost seems like you got and. and survey the situation you got from your dad because one of the things you had written was your mom was asking you questions and your dad was just waiting to hear what you were going to do next your mom was asking you questions about what you're doing and why are you doing this and how can you and no but your dad just listened and he was waiting for <laughs> I thought that was fantastic yeah you know he was kind of sneaky about it too even when I was in the academy my mom insisted they weren't coming to the graduation she's like I don't want to be a police officer she was not for it at all my dad would send me articles like on Chicago cops or something that would, you know, come up in the, in the press about like, you know, some federal agents or he would always just send little things on the fly. Like, you know, I don't even know if my mom knew he was sending these things. You know? Probably but, not. You know, probably not. Was it but cut yeah. out? Was it cut out actual articles stamped yeah. envelope? Yes. Yeah. So yeah. Yes. Yep. Yep. Yeah. So all of us were parents of that, you know, all of us of this age had parents that (laughs) cut the articles, mailed it to us, highlighted. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And so, yeah, I probably do get that part from my mom. She definitely would be the one that, um, that's more on the emotional and verbal end in our house than my dad. And then, I do have his certain traits of his as well. And he used to say all the time, like the, the best quality about me is that I'm overly emotional. And the worst part about me is that I'm overly emotional. <laughs> and I'm like, so you're balanced. You know how great, how difficult it is to have a man tell you you're balanced? <laughs> yeah. I'm, I'm not sure he would say that it was balanced. He'd be like, I didn't say that. He'd be like, She's taking me out of context. I didn't say you were balanced. Yeah, I, I get told sometimes over here like that I'm that I'm crazy, and I'm like, well, who's crazier then? If you're with crazy, then you're crazier, <laughs> you know. But mm-hmm. yeah, yeah, yeah. I, uh, I have to agree with them about the emotional things. I think it it makes me very good at what I do sometimes, and it also makes me like unable to step back sometimes. Like sometimes I could not turn off the like type A personality you know and, and it must I exhaust I, you because you're you just you feel it by the time you get home like you said you just you just don't let go of it like and there's always yeah. a new case it seems like there's just always something so you're just carrying yeah. the stress and the emotion of 
the case from a year ago, from five years ago, everything just keeps rolling. But yeah, that's what you that's what you refer to as when you say that it's your calling, right? That's what you yes. It, it yeah. kind of gets who you are. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I really, you know, kind of, I never wanted to be a cop. I never wanted to be an investigator. I never thought about like that. Like when I was a little kid, I never thought, oh, I would, you know, want to be a police officer. Like it never occurred to me in a million years. You didn't walk and, around with a little fake badge and a gun. <laughs> yeah, never. Like I never was one of those kids that did any, any of that, you know, dress up, you know, gun stuff, shoes, never, never involved in any of that stuff. Never interested in, never even like into the crime shows or just not, it was not something that I really ever thought about. And then, you know, when I got in the academy, I ended up, you know, going to like, you know, one of the busier neighborhoods when I got out of the academy. And then I just always liked it there. And I spent like the majority of my career there and I really wouldn't have it any other way and I like joke to people sometimes because I like a lot of different music I like punk rock and I like rap and I like hip-hop and I like you know old classic music and like I just I like a lot of different stuff but I I like to kind of liken my career sometimes to like like they say in the rap songs you know I'm gonna be doing it till the wheels fall off and then then you know it's a wrap but you know at some point, obviously retirement will come, but I just, I can't be doing a different assignment, you know, at any point in time. It always comes back to this, even when I've promoted and left for a minute and gone, you know, even just across the hall and worked another assignment. It's like, then I'm back within a year over, you know, working more murder cases. And, you know, it's just, that just very different. I mean, I even had one of one of the biggest cases that I had though, I had two life cases working regular detectives that were really, really good cases. And I actually used them when I promoted um, as part of my like promotional interview process because the one difference in those cases, they were both robbery, home invasions. So somebody broke into these families' houses while they were home and then tied them up and did horrible things inside their house to the family members and took their property. Um, one of them, they they slashed like the father's calf um, with a knife. And in the other one, the young daughter that was 19 was sexually assaulted by more than one of the individuals. So both of those cases were life cases for the, the suspects. And I talked in my interview about just the process of, instead of just dealing with like a victim's family, dealing with live victims and the difference of that and dealing with a squad room of maybe less experienced detectives. Because when I go over to the homicide bay, it's generally pretty experienced people. If we get a big case, I have a pool of people to draw from that all kind of know what they're doing. They're at the top of their game, so to speak. If I need a search warrant in two minutes, I can get somebody on it. I can orchestrate a 
crime scene with no issue. Everybody knows, like, I don't have to teach anybody what to do as we're going. I mean, there are new people, so you're going to be teaching some people, but if, if something is happening, it's hot, it's now, I have a resource room full of people over on the other side of the hall with like regular detectives that come from all different types of crime tables that may or may not have experience with a lot of detective work of any type, let alone a case where it's like a life case. Because that's kind of not to, as a, to totally go off on a tangent, but you brought up like the court thing. At the beginning of every case and how you work a case, somewhere in your mind, you have to be thinking like, how is this going to play out in court? What is this case? What type of case is this? You have to work that with that in mind. You have to work it with the end game in mind. And I think if you do that, no matter if it's a little case or a big case, you're going in the right direction every time. Like if I'm going to decide whether I'm going to pick this up or if I'm going to leave it there and have some expert come and do whatever to it, it's it's the process of, well, if I don't pick it up, are they going to ask me this, that, whatever? Like that's got to be like rolling through your head when you're making those decisions of how you want to process something you know, what, what is the better process for this item or that item? It's, it's how it's going to play out later on, whether, you know, it's in front of a jury or not, whether you ever get it there. That's, that's your goal is thinking the whole thing through kind of with that mindset. But it was kind of that process of taking these individuals on the other side of the hall with the, uh, the less experience and saying, oh my God, now I need you know, to ping phones and I need to, you know, interview people and I need to do field show ups with these people and I need somebody to go with this young lady over to the hospital and like you're wrangling, it was almost like wrangling cats. cats. You're, you know, you've got all these people and like some of them don't have even close to the experience and you're like, oh my gosh, okay, so let's get these guys to do this part. And it was just a much more I don't want to say fulfilling. It's probably not the right word, but it was, it's like taking like the beginners that never played the sport and then winning the championship when it's all done versus taking the Michael Jordans and being like, okay, let's put you all together and then we win. Like, you know, it's, it just was really a eye-opening experience and and I felt like it was a good experience, not just for like my career, but like it 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 kind of well-rounded me, I think, going over there and like taking these breaks from homicide and doing other things and kind of maybe sharpening my toolbox, adding a few more things and maybe bringing some things over there that maybe were different than what they were doing, you know, at some of those other tables. You've so mentioned something about being a teacher, like your parents in, and where, where you wanted to go when you were younger, but you ended up doing it just in a different way. Yeah. It, my dad always, uh, he's a teacher and he would just all the while when we were growing up, he was, you know, be a teacher, be a teacher. It's the best job ever. You get your 
your nights off, your weekends off, holidays off with your kids, summers off, you know, and then, you know, fast forward to like, what's the complete opposite of that? Be, uh, you know, in a call out profession where, you know, it's 24 seven, your phone could ring and any holiday you come into work, if it's, if it's that time and, you know, it's just, it's just kind of crazy that it, it ended up being the opposite like that, but it, but yeah, it, it has been, it has been a teaching career in, in a much different way, but it still has, it had moments of that in my, in my career for sure. And, and it's, it's definitely where I was supposed to be like that. I'm sure of. Well, thank you so much for coming and doing this week's episode of Woman with us, because I think what you have to share is just incredible. And anybody who knows me or follows Twisted History knows that I am a huge, um, I have a huge fascination with serial killers. So um, having the opportunity to speak to somebody who can be on the opposite side, who actually knows the ins and outs of um, how things get broken down, is just such, it's such a pleasure for me. Like, it's just really, it really is just so exciting for me to have somebody on who can speak intelligently about it. So thank you so much for coming on. Well, thank you guys both for having me on. And I'm sorry that it's so crazy in the world and we like logistically had to struggle a little to make it happen, but it's the way of the world, I guess. So I think it's almost perfect timing that you were on my very short list of women that I wanted. I think she was top three, five back yeah, when we first time. started, like before we ever recorded. I was like, I want her on. She's just amazing. Um, and now the world is just totally different than when we started Well Man. And I mean, I don't even know. I was, I was talking to Annie. I was like, I'm kind of curious. I have this one really weird question for you. And I, I want you to obviously, you know, introduce yourself, but I think back when you started versus like the last maybe few years, there's probably been a difference for you when you're dealing with families and possibly parents back then versus now. Cause I think everybody oh, yeah. must be like a Karen, like it's not my kid. They did no wrong. Whereas back when we were growing up, our parents were more like, you did what they said you did what you're, you know? And I just think not only has the world changed, but I think that, you know, just families and people, how they react to things and, how much harder must it be to get someone to actually, I don't want to say drop a dime on family, but, you know, actually, you know, be cooperative for you. So. Oh, 100%. Cooperation is like, I don't even know if that's the true word we would even use. It's like a, it's like a constant negotiation and struggle and, and sometimes it's like very ugly, but I mean, from back in the day to now, oh my God, the, the, the 180 degree differences, it, it's hugely dramatic. I mean, I can remember days in my early patrol days where parents literally, like the good parents that didn't want their kid in a gang or involved in the streets would say, if you see my kid out there again, officer, scoop him up beat their ass and bring them home. And, you know, without implicating people of anything that could today get them indicted. Um, right. 
you know, that kind of scenario might happen or something similar. Or you've certainly had the parents that wanted you to give their kid that tough love and they didn't want their kid in the street. And there's no way you would even think to put your hands on somebody's kid nowadays without a justifiable use of force situation that could be videotaped by the whole world, put on display, and that the whole world would agree was justifiable use of force. I mean, period. Or you're going to prison for life. Because they don't see before. They don't see what they did. Cameras only tell one side of the story. I just, you know, like you, there are certain cameras that, like we talked with um, Nako um, about that there's just no justification. You know, there's no justification for the nine minutes. There's certain things yeah. that are just, there's zero, zero. And there's the bad actors that we talked about with like the people who wear wear the uniform, but they're really in costume because right. they're really not. Um, but it's just wild that they can just give you a, a snippet, like 45 seconds, and you think the cop has just gone overboard, but you don't see the 15 minute struggle. And you know, because they don't record that part or they don't get to see Or they don't show it. Yeah. Yeah. They start the tape at whatever point. I mean, you can show or skew or, you know, this happens with the media all the time. You can paint the picture however you want to paint it just by showing whatever portion of it you want to show or by starting it at whatever point in the tape you want to start it. And it's, it is truly amazing how you can like, alter somebody's perception of a scenario by just doing that. And it happens in a good way as well as a bad way. Like it can happen in a courtroom, like how you present a case. Well, I'm going to start with presenting it from the end or the beginning or, you know, whatever makes the best, you know, sense of maybe a timeline for your jury or makes it palatable for the person to understand, but you know, you wanna you wanna sell it a certain way. So the media wants to sell it a certain way or whatever the case may be, it it could just change the story from, you know, this person's the perpetrator to that person's the perpetrator, or, you know, this person's the wrongdoer, or that person's the wrongdoer. And it's just it's just shocking what what the difference is if you don't show the whole entire thing. I mean, I've been at scenes where you know, a lawn is covered with candles, um, gang paraphernalia, and then you've got, of course, out there the, you know, cap and gown photo from, you know, kindergarten and fifth grade and all the, you know, childhood memories. And then that's what gets put on the news. You never see the gang stuff. And it's just like, if you took a picture of the whole street versus this tiny little portion, what does that show? It's just, it's, it's, what do you want to present and how do you present it? And that's kind of what our whole society has been like, even in 2020, you know, like you said, there's no justification in the world for a George Floyd incident. That's bad training. That's no checks and balances of the other officers. There's, there's just a million wrongs. And then there's no good cop that can ever look at that and, not hate that more than people hate it. Citizens hate it. It's, it makes everybody look bad. But, you know, 
other videos, they can be skewed by that whole starting the timeline in a different place or not showing the whole complete thing. I mean, it's just, it's really, uh, it's the technology world and it's, uh, it's for whoever puts it out first, shows what portion they want to show. It's kind of who's in control of the media sometimes. It's so many factors and so such a, a big part of what's going on and what, what people's perception is. And it's what they form their opinions off of. And that's what really kind of makes it scary and, uh, and kind of a big, a big deal. Do, do courtrooms buy that narrative, the false narrative that's presented some, most of the time? You know, um, that's tough to say. Um, they, they do sometimes. Um, it, I find that in general, it depends on what, to what degree, like, I think like take, for example, like the death penalty, that this is like kind of my easiest example of showing something that globally, maybe people don't agree on, but like when you're given like the scenarios of just how it works out in the real world, it plays out so differently. So without even taking into account whether you think it's right, wrong or indifferent, when you go to court, there's two phases of court. There's the, is he guilty or innocent phase? And then there's the sentencing phase. So you go through the whole trial once where it's guilty or innocent. And then if they decide it's guilty, then you do like a whole nother court proceeding for the sentencing to see if you're gonna do the death penalty part. This is when, of course, in California, they were still going to do, to do the death penalty and use it. Right now it's off the table. But if, if people decided without a doubt, like there was so much evidence in this case, like, okay, it's, it's guilty, right? They have no problem, these, these nine individuals going, oh yes, this person is completely guilty. It's another thing, even when they sat down and answered all the questions in, you know, voir dire, like, I can be impartial, I can be this, I can be that. It's another thing when you have to make that decision, like, do you wanna put this person to death? And it's a very hard decision for people. And I, I have found in, just my experience of watching this play out, that most people can easily decipher with the facts presented guilt in a lot of cases, but they definitely had a harder time instituting the law to follow the sentencing properly, even if the law is presented there. So say all the law is there and you're supposed to then follow the sentencing and find the person should be, you know, given the death penalty, I find that people still will err on the side of going the other way and giving them like the maximum sentence of life in prison, yeah. you know, without the possibility of parole or whatever it may be. And I just think that even though they agree to not have anything but the facts come in and make the decision that way. I think the human conscience comes in. And I think that that can be a good thing because it prevents, I think it prevents our society from doing things that are maybe egregiously wrong in some cases. Um, but I think that 
also when you're agreeing to go into a court and follow the court rules, it's problematic because you're if you're kind of not able to if you're then falling back on these other things. So some of those things probably need to be looked at in the justice system. And there's probably a reason why some of these things are coming off the table now. Um, but it's it's very interesting to watch people kind of go through that process. And I've had to sit down with families, victims' families, and discuss that whole thing about the death penalty. And I always explain to them just how long the process takes because, you know, sometimes you're playing this out for years and years and years just to get to court. And then when you're going to court, then they get appeals and everything, even if they're convicted. They get appeals and that goes for years more. And you might be just going through this for, you know, decades sometimes. So in a death penalty case, you're absolutely going to be dealing with that for the rest of your life. So do you really want to place such an emphasis on having like a death penalty case when they might just do life in prison? It, it's in some ways easier for the victim's family. Do they tell juries that? that? Do they tell jurors that you have to like, now remember, if you could find this person guilty, the next phase is the sentencing phase and you're going to have to like decide, you're going to, what you decide is going to put in the judge's mind what the sentencing should be. Because I, I, I know jurors don't have a say in the sentencing, right? But do they, they must know right. ahead of time what the options are. Well, yeah, in a death penalty case, it is it is different. So they do explain that there's two phases because they do all of the one phase is like a whole separate hearing, and then the second phase is a separate hearing. So they they do in that case. Because um, that's gonna be tough. Yeah, you know, like this, like oh my, because you know, ultimately, if you're the one person that holds out, he doesn't get put to death, right? Like that. I don't. I don't think I'd want that over my head. Right. Well, and. Even sometimes when people have to return a verdict for somebody in in just a regular, mm -hmm. you know, non-death penalty case, when you know that the, the penalties are, you know, very long, like in mm -hmm. a murder case, you know, I have I've watched jurors just the just the weight of the responsibility of being a juror and weighing in, you know, all the facts of the case and the evidence and you know. It's not something that's easy in those cases. I mean, I've watched people cry when they they are in the jury box when they're they're doing what they believe is right. They're giving their verdict as they feel is correct given the evidence in the case, but they still are looking at another human being on the on the in the courtroom at the table and they they are feeling all the things that somebody would feel in sending somebody to prison and yet they feel the same things when they look at the evidence when it comes on and you see you know evidence of you know a dead body and and what somebody else did to that person and then you see victims family members in court and you know it they can be very emotional and and they you know they're feeling all those things throughout the whole trial and it's very uh it's a very very emotional process for all the parties that are involved and i think people don't give a lot of credit to the to the people that have to invest their time, whether it's in a jury box or even, you know, like a court employee, like if you're a stenographer and you've got to type all that stuff out, like the stuff that you're kind of dealing with on a daily basis and some of those things, it, it, it can be heavy subject matter, you know, on the regular basis for sure.
I bet. I bet. How do you, so now I got to assume that when you deal with this, you deal a lot with children and I got, that's got to be, I mean, the people alone, adults, teenagers, 20, 30, 40, 50, just dealing with the emotion alone. But when those cases come along where there's kids, man, that's got to be tough going home at night. Yeah. You know, it's, I think that it's always, it's, it's always tough. I mean, it's tough when there's kids. It's tough when it's, you know, somebody's parents. Um, just the level of, of how do you give the notification to somebody? Um, a lot of the times in just the way things happen in the world, if it's, if it's a shooting in the street, a lot of times uh, the family is coming out to you because they're hearing from somebody. Somebody is telling somebody, that their loved one is out there. And then in some ways, those are easier if there is an easier when it comes to that, because you're able to take a momentary break from what you're doing at the scene. You make contact with them and you're you're meeting with them and you're you're giving them your information and you're, you know, you're you're still in progress with your crime scene. So you have to go back to that. And, and there's a natural break that's gonna happen, obviously, when you have to go back and continue on with what you're doing. When you have to go seek somebody out and go find them and, and let them know, it's just, it's kind of up for grabs what you're gonna get. I mean, I've seen everything from, you know, people being kicked out of people's houses, um, you know, a change of emotions where they're, you know, they're one emotion at the beginning and then they're, then they're kicking you out of the house or they're, you know, they're upset or, you know, people that are passing out and you're calling ambulances. There's so many, like, it's a, just a huge array of, of emotions. There's people that don't believe. I mean, I had, I actually had a scene where I took a brand new partner I had and uh, she'd been in the field for years. She experienced police officer, but you know, this is her first time. She's going to have to give a death notification. And it happened to be a Spanish-speaking case, and she's Spanish-speaking. And we get to the door, and, you know, sometimes people don't want to let us into their house right away. And you want to try to gingerly explain to them that you have something to tell them of importance, but you don't want to break this to them outside their door, but where their neighbors can hear whatever else. But I'm trying to, you know, explain this to her and she's trying to translate it in another language. And this woman was so distrusting of the police. She, she didn't want to listen. She didn't believe we were the police. We showed her ID badges. We asked her if she wanted to call the police station. It just became this crazy scenario. And my partner looked at me and she's like, okay, what, what do I tell her now? And I'm like, this is the craziest notification I've ever had to make. Um, yeah, you're try anything. Yeah, like, look. <laughs> like whatever you can do to get us into her house so that we don't have to tell like at that point her neighbors are looking and everybody thought and I'm like, oh my God, please let us not have to tell her this way. But even when we did get inside, which we did, she didn't believe us. And yet the scene was right behind the house. You actually heard the gunshot, and we asked her if she heard gunshots. She said she did, and we're like, "Okay, this is your husband." She didn't want to believe it, wow. and I'm like, "Okay, okay, I don't even know what to say at this point." Like, you know, 
eventually she did understand what was happening, but you just go through some crazy scenarios that you would never believe, you know, in a million years that are, could actually happen. You know, like mm -hmm. sometimes you think like the movies don't portray things and then you're like, wow, you just can't make these things up. And then you think you've seen everything and then something else happens and you're like, yeah, there's not enough years in law enforcement life because something else will happen and you'll be like, yep, didn't see that one coming. And it's something new. And you're like, wow, there's another new one. Wow. Is there any, you think there are any TV shows that actually can capture, like, you know, from, for, for someone like me or my husband or friends, I was like, we only get to watch what we see on TV. Like the news is, and the news is obviously not as, you know, they're not as creative as a, a TV show, something, something fiction would be, but does there, are there any shows that really come close to what you experience? Oh gosh. I think that there's a lot of good ones. Um, Oh, wow. I wish I would have thought this out better before we started. <laughs> come back to it. I, I know just find I've it amazing. Seen, yeah, I, I've seen great or movies in, yeah. yes, in both, in TV and movies. I've seen some fantastic technical advising. And then, you know, you might even in the same show then see something so ridiculous. You're like, wait, right. what happened here? This was going so great. Right, and right. And something crazy just happened. But... You know, one of my favorite things to watch actually is like the kind of uh, sped up reality of things. Like in a show, you always have to see something come back in non-real time because like DNA is a fantastic thing. But let's face it, if I put in a DNA request today, we're not seeing it anytime this year, most likely. I mean, if I put a really, it's that the turnaround on that is that long? Generally, what? yes. Yes, it's really astronomically long. I really? Mean, it, it does take a really, really long time. I would have never guessed that in a million years. Honestly, yeah. I really would never have guessed that. That's a shame. I mean, that's because of how it's portrayed. I mean, this all happens, like, if you watch an hour show, that stuff's coming back, like, they, they take a swab, they swab something, they run it to the lab, and then they're telling you, like, they put it in the magic computer, and they're like, Hey, that it's came so back to so badly. And you're like, holy cow, that's amazing. And you're like, no, it doesn't happen that way. I don't even get to actually submit it like that. Like you can submit it and then it goes to some national database. And if there's actually a, what we refer to as like a cold hit, they say it like matches somebody. It doesn't even come back to me directly. Like it will go back to some entity of your department that collects those what we call CODIS hits these cold hits and then that person has to notify you and then you go oh okay that cold hit came back to O'Malley then I got to send out some sneaky you know surveillance team or something or I have to go have an interview directly with with you and ask for another sample because what if that was some fluke thing that happened with this DNA somehow Okay. And it's not actually me yours yeah. or, you know, there's, there's checks and balances for these things, basically right. is what I'm trying to say. So I got to then go and get your confirmation swab where I directly get it from you. And then we've got to take that back. So there's all these things in place so that you don't have these crazy, you know, false DNA things happen. But yeah, it's, it never comes back like it shows on TV. 
but it has made amazing strides over the years. And it's one of the things that has kind of changed the game in like unsolved matters and things like that. But it is, uh, it's kind of, that's the fun part of watching those shows for me actually is watching like the insane ease that they have our job looking like. And I'm like, yeah, it doesn't happen like that. Like, I wish that was how it was because I want the magic machine and I would love (laughs) my cases to be solved in some quick manner like that. Just like everybody's always got a fantastic analyst. And I'm like, oh yeah, I want like 10 of those for Christmas. Like (laughs) that's not happening either. They're like, oh, well, who's your analyst? I'm like, you're looking at her. Like I analyze my stuff. I'm like, yeah, we don't have like this whole like office where there's all these like wazoo people in there and they're all doing all this great stuff for you. Like that's the mythological, you know, murder world, which I would love to see one day, but yeah, it's not quite, uh, not quite how it happened. You should watch one of those shows, detective shows on TV and be like the box on the corner of the screen, like the queer eye for the straight guy, like what, and analyze everything that they're doing. Well, that would be funny. (laughs) Yeah. There's probably something to that. Like you could probably have like a really funny, you know, like, Four different detectives in four different corners. Like, all yeah. <laughs> compare. What was that science fiction? Oh, I can't think of it. Something where the the guys and the like the robot sat in the like a movie theater and they just commented on it. it was like for something science um, theater. And they were on the front row, ago. right? Yes, in the yeah, front yeah, row. I know yeah, I can't. About. I'm like my brain is is blanking. But they used to <laughs> comment on stuff the whole time. Like you would see the movie, but if you actually wanted to watch that movie, you would never. Like you needed to watch the movie on its on your own before you ever right, watched that. Right, right, right. And then you could like watch the commentary. But yeah, I actually don't even watch like um, those crime shows. Um, like the closest I think I get is like the Sherlock show that was from BBC um, forever ago. You know, I, I think that's like the closest. And when you said DNA, like picking off the DNA, my mind went right to Harry Potter when Hermione picked the wrong, the wrong piece of hair and she got like the cat the person's cat instead and she took it and she turned into a cat that's where my brain went <laughs> i'm an idiot <laughs> but that's kind of but that's kind of interesting so we we did have one like way back a million years ago this is like in my earlier days in homicide like i started working homicide in 2005 and actually it was a co-worker of mine he had a case where they did get a fiber off of off of a like a do-rag that was you know so they thought oh yeah this is a hair fiber this is great it ended up being from somebody's dog and like they really thought they had like they were onto something but it ended up turning out to be a pretty good lead for them anyway because it led them to a certain gang member that had a certain kind of dog and they did end up still kind of making their case off of it despite thinking they had the magic bullet and then they right. didn't really have it. But yeah, they were like, oh yeah, no, this is a canine hair. Sorry. Like, Come on. <laughs> you know, it's like the one hair and it's like, I got a hair. Yeah. And then it's like, no, you got a dog hair. And it's like, oh, oh yeah. God. You know what you need? You need a guy. You need a guy at 23 and me. Like, you know, how you, like, people have a guy like you. Like, I got a guy that's a plumber, a guy that's like, you need a guy that works at 23 and me. So <laughs> grace yeah. him and he can just run it through. Like, isn't that how they caught the, a golden state killer? Joseph yeah. Daniels, like just randomly, wow. somebody was looking for, you know, relatives, right? Yes. That, yeah, that, that, that is why those things are really, they're, they're game changers. They, they really are, 
they're they're really changing things and and that's the thing it's like even if that guy never does anything it's like those those 23 and me and those kind of things it's like the familial dna it's like you can still they've made such strides in the dna world it's like it's it's like I don't even have to be the one that's participating in this. I could be doing my sneaky little thing over here. But if my sister's like, oh, it'd be so cool to do this. And she's like, I'm donating this and I'm swapping over here. And I'm, I'm trying to see where did our family come from? And, I'm, you know, it doesn't even matter what I'm doing. If she's doing it, like then our stuff as a family is in this right. database. And uh-huh. there's some level of, of percentage rate that you can check these things. and it's it's really, it's, it's come such a long way and it's, it's so helpful. I mean, it's so helpful because that's kind of where we're going to. If you, if you start tearing down the world socially, uh, like with police officers, if you have this pendulum swing back this way where we don't like the police anymore and now we don't want to trust them anymore, well, what are you going to trust? You're going to trust video, science, things that like can't be disputed in the same way that maybe you would want to dispute you know, testimony of either the police or another witness or something else. So science is a good thing always. And video is a good thing always. And anything technologically, like speaking, that's kind of like the new wave of where everything's going. And, you know, it's, it's always the things that cost money, but it's, you know, it's also the things that are kind of dead bang that are hard to create defenses too so it's kind of the way of the way of the world so now as a as a homicide detective when you're working on a case like you there is no substitution for the human mind so when you're working on a case there are probably a few that you haven't solved yet or have and they're and you're in the process of do you ever look at the case you're working on and all of a sudden it's like oh my god this is how what happened in that situation like a plot like do they all somehow connect in your mind like you're always seeing the like the grid in front of you of all the cases you have because sometimes something that happens in this one will spark your memory in that one like does it ever come from like way back you know like months ago like oh my god I forgot about this case this nothing you ever forget about it I'm sure you don't but um like almost like it's something that you put on the back burner because there is no answer for it and you're like I know something's going to come up it's just I just have to wait it out and then all of a sudden it just clicks in the middle of something else Oh yeah. I mean, there's, you're always kind of trying to keep up with whatever the new things are and then think about what you could do for those ones that are like kind of stuck. Cause you'll start, I mean, there is something to like the first 48, you know, that show being, you know, the premise of all the best leads happen in the first 48 hours. It's not necessarily that it's all the best things, but you are going to chase down as much as you can until like there's nothing else you could do in that initial right. call out time frame you're going to you're going to pull whatever evidence you can you're going to talk to whoever's right there at your scene you're going to do whatever is possible during that initial time frame and then you know the few weeks and and months that are initial are you know you're writing your most warrants and all those things but if you get a case that just kind of hits a wall where you can't progress you you know you're always kind of 
looking at what can be done there. And there are things that will kind of spur that to kind of come back into effect. Sometimes it's people. So if you work a same, you know, same area, you know, crime, you're going to know all your players, your gangs, your, your business owners, whatever. So if I arrest somebody from gang A and, you know, I end up with somebody from gang B in my office, I'm going to ask if there's a rivalry. I'm going to ask those questions, you know, hey, you know, if you get somebody talking to them, especially because they start talking about something and then you always throw in the, hey, do you remember at the liquor store about four years ago, five years ago, the kid that was killed, you know, something where, you know, you can ask about an old case. So sometimes it's people, sometimes it's driven by who is in the office now, who's in custody now, who's talking right now. Sometimes it's driven by technology. So I was in a seminar once where they're talking about some new way to capture data. And it was like based on a kind of a grid, so to speak. And I had this one case that is really difficult and I'm kind of at a wall. And I do have good video of my suspects leaving. And they're basically, I have basically a five different video clip thing from point A to Z, say. And I have in like point A, point B, point C, point D. And then it just goes dry, right? I, then I don't know where they go. But there's a way now to like capture like the social media and everything, all the devices in a search warrant format, but you get it like anonymously. So I have to write one for like point A for all those devices for a really, really small time frame. So say, say I see my guys at 12 noon. I'm going to like have to whittle that thing down so far so that it's only like a couple minutes on each end. And then I have to do the same for each point. And then basically you're looking for common devices in all of those points along the way so that you can then write another warrant to try to find out what those devices are. That's how you're going to end up finding out who these people are. So say these guys are in a car and they've got a phone amongst them. Somewhere in that vehicle, that phone should move. If that phone, if I get devices and they stay in that area, then it's not going to be my people, right? Because then that's somebody in another house, apartment, car, standing on the street, whatever. But if it moves every time my video showed these guys moving and then it just disappears or it goes somewhere else, the next point will be where I'm looking, right? So you, I was like, oh my God, I got to write one of these things for this case. So I did, but deciphering that information is astronomical. So that's where I'm at now with that one. So I don't have any great story of, yeah, and then I got him. No. <laughs> Hopefully down the, down the road, it'll be, and then I got him. <laughs> but currently, it's a work in progress. But it's like, this is one of those cases that, you know, I, I feel so badly for the family. They, they type my phone every two weeks. And, you know, you want to solve all your cases. That's just you know, human nature, but it's like, 
there's only so many times that you can tell somebody else to like hang in there and that, you know, you just never know when you're going to get that lead because you really don't. I mean, mm-hmm. that's how these unsolved cases sometimes like 20 years later, they might get solved. I went on a follow-up the other day, actually, with another coworker of mine, and he had to knock on the door of somebody's case that's just years and years and years old. And the woman broke into tears. She was so happy that sure. somebody was looking at this case because she didn't know. And they, they, they found something new, and it just spurred him to pick up this case. And then she was just being notified, and she was just like tears of joy, and she just was so happy. Not and forgotten. you just never know. You never know. We never know. I mean, you could have a good feeling about something and then it doesn't materialize. And sometimes it, it just is a quick and easy, you know, all the videos in the right place. And then, you know, it falls together. But, you know, you just never know what you're going to get. But it just never makes it, you know, any, you know, easier. You know? Do you keep a tally of how many that you've solved versus how many you have it? Like, are you competitive with yourself that way? Um, I think in the beginning I tried to, um, and then as the years went on, it just became so voluminous Then it just, it, it gets just too much. Um, but I could probably go back in time and figure it out, but, uh, I no longer have that tally plus you go to other people's scenes that's the thing it's like you know a lot of the times you're involved in other cases that are not your own so especially as like a supervisor level like you're going to search warrants you're supervising search warrants you're you're doing a lot more that may not be your actual personal case but there's so much going on at one time and you're gonna jump in and help others if there's I might be working on one thing and then if there's, you know, a case and a call out, everybody goes to that in that squad and helps out. So you're, you kind of get lost in the, the numbers at that point. You know, like if for my department alone last year, there were like 351 murders citywide. And, you know, that was a big spike, like up 30% from last year. So like just for people like that's their it's just a lot more than what they had been used to if they were if they were keeping track of that stuff right right so now when you watch the news and you see everything that's going on in the world the amount of experience that you have had over the since 96 I guess is that when you started yes I mean the like you speak volumes I mean that's a that's a lot of time it's 25 years right like that's a lot of time and experience and expertise do you ever see that the big cases on tv like on the news and you're and you think to yourself why aren't they doing this and why aren't they doing that and you know like i'm fascinated by the john benet case like i just am i think it's probably because i lived in georgia when it was happening but like there are so many times when i read stories and and just like the news clippings and i just remember being watching it happen and i think to myself like it just seems like a lot of things like common sense is lost on some things like that's got to be frustrating for someone like you to see these big cases from a distance right because you know from three thousand feet everything looks different so it's like do you ever see these things and want to share like i have a girlfriend in the fbi 
And she's like, well, if you ever thought something, you should always share it. You should always tell somebody. And, and I wonder how many times that happens. People just randomly call up and say, you know, or are they just kind of like, you know, put off like they're just given to a switchboard operator and be like, oh, file this on another coop, the things I know how to solve the problem. But you have like legitimate expertise with this stuff. I got to imagine if you saw something from a case that was happening in Georgia or in Maine, they would want your opinion on something like that. You know, it's it's hard to say. Sometimes what you're seeing on, uh, like the portrayal of something is not quite accurate or it's not the full story or uh, so they intentionally leave stuff out all the time um you may or may not show something because your department wants to show something and you may not even want that information out there um like in the case of like some of the serial killers like they're you know the i think it was the richard ramirez case oh my god when he was like, I was terrified you know, of him, by the way. I love you. Should have been. I'm from Southern yeah. California. And my parents had me completely convinced that he was going to come get me through our window. <laughs> like I was terrified. Yeah. I, I just, I still, oh my God. Sorry. I'm just, boy, does that like send. Oh, he was yeah. just everywhere. Yeah. Everybody in Southern California thought they yeah. were next. And but he went from. He, Coast to coast, right? North. Yes, he went north. Yes. And that's part of like the craziness. So like when you're, you know, they were closing in on him and everything else. And then we we actually sat through a seminar where they talked about like case by case, the details of it. And then they were like, yeah. And then next thing they know, there's a press conference in Northern California where they talked about similarities of what they had found, like, like a shoe print or shoe size or something. Mm-hmm. And, you know, they never did get his shoes because why would you want that information released? Sure. So there's, you got to be so careful with like analyzing that kind of stuff. Cause like, if it was me, I'd be like, don't tell anyone anything, but those right. days are gone. Like, you know, right. nowadays it's all, everything's got to go up your chain of command. So like, you know, the, the chief wants to know everything, but it's like the, the era of social media and everything and cell phones and all that. So you've got to tell your bosses and your bosses are telling their bosses and everybody's got to have their hand in the pot and they got to know, you know. And it's so much more information probably than ever before. Because now like when you're texting something, you you don't leave anything out. You give it everything. And then you can send a picture and a picture shows everything, right? There's no leaving anything. How how can you possibly internalize all that? Right. Well, and sometimes they need to like pull some of that back because, you know, if you look at like the, the cases that are successful and they, they run smoothly, it's when it's just your average everyday, like my victim is, you know, John Doe, I have this video, I'm operating with this. It's, you know, I, this is how I'm progressing. But all of a sudden when John Doe is Mr. Famous person, now the whole world wants to know. And then they start I need this notification and that notification. They start sending it all to everybody. And then they start weighing in like, I want this and I need you to do that. No, no, no. I do it the same simple way I do everything. And then it continues to run smooth. When everybody starts weighing in with their crazy talk from some other chair somewhere, that's when you get crazy problems and, you know, things go awry. And almost every big incident has that because they, 
get meddling from the just non-investigators. It's usually the um, just the the wheels of the bureaucracy turning, I guess, would be a good way to phrase it. But it's you go to some of these seminars and they talk about like the good things that happen and then the bad things that happen. And it's like the number one thing you hear is that, you know, when we deviated from our normal program here, this is, you know, this is what happened. I mean, they even had it where they said in the Vegas shooting at the country concert, you know, this mass incident, you know, their SWAT guys, when they went in to the, to the room, to clear the room, you know, they went into the guy's pocket and pulled out the ID because somebody in their command staff wanted to know who this guy was, had to know that second. Well, in general, law enforcement does not go into the pockets of a dead person. The body is the property of the coroner. So you don't touch the body. Now, when your medical people are at any scene, like whether it's at a crime scene and they're they're still working on the body or they're checking him for life, they generally, if they run across a wallet with ID or whatever, they usually pull it out and set it aside so that not only they can get in the information, you can get the information. It's just a helpful thing that they have always, you know, learned to do and done as medical people, and it assists everybody. But you know, there was nobody there when they breached the room in you know the the high rise of the hotel there in Vegas. And so then all of a sudden you've got a seasoned SWAT guy doing something that a seasoned SWAT guy does not do. You, you know, but it's because somebody else wanted to know somebody higher up. It's like, you know, the incident is now over. That guy is now deceased. You don't need his name right this second. Just wait two more seconds for this guy to come. And then you're going to have the name. Just, you know, it's like you do something different because you are trying to appease somebody that's needs to know now. <laughs> no, no, you don't need to know right now. Just hold on. Hold on one second. Just do it like we always do it. But so now that breaking protocol, does that start a chain reaction? It sometimes can, but it, you know, where, where you don't want something like that to play out at some point in time is in a courtroom. Right. If, if I always do procedures this way, and then all of a sudden on some big case where there's going to be a lot of cameras and a lot of people doing something like, ah, perhaps like an OJ case. And all of a sudden, then you're like, they picked up a glove, they put a glove back up. Like they do things that don't look right. Well, it's because they've got all this craziness going on because now all of a sudden they're enter the famous person. And it's like a lot of those things are just simple little things like that that are just guys are doing things, overthinking things, too many people involved in something that they're just doing something different than they would normally do. But, you know, it's just kind of the the new kind of way policing is. It's like that information flow has to go up there. So it's kind of like, how do you how do you do the what the command staff wants and at the same time keep the honor of your case the way it needs to be, keep your investigation integrity the way it needs to be? It's like you have to have like your own checks and balances for that. Like, hey, this is what's on this video. This is why I don't want it released. So 
make sure the chief knows that, like, or whatever you need to do, like, like with emphasis, boss, please tell him this, you know, uh, you know, I don't know what the, the right answer is for that, but, you know, I think that, you know, we all have good bosses and then we have, you know, bosses that we wish were a little bit, you know, better, but, um, retired it's, it's definitely <laughs> right it's definitely uh it's definitely one of those newer things that everybody's had to adjust to because the old school way was you know you just didn't report that stuff up there you're like yeah so i've got this i've got that but you know we're not telling anybody that yet and then they were like all right check and then you moved on but now that's just not the way this modern policing era goes so, so you talked yeah. about famous people and how that can just change everybody because people start acting dumb around famous people when a case isn't famous but for whatever reason it picks up and it sparks sort of like john benet ramsey i remember being in san diego and the um danielle van dam murder case was going on and it was huge and it was making national news i don't know if anyone will listening to this will even remember what it was but she was taken from her home by a neighbor and during that time, because it hit the news, she was still alive. The neighbor had her alive. She was killed later, like a day or two later. I've heard just from just reading up on the case that if they had some of the detectives, if they had been able to do what they wanted to do, they might have been able to catch her while she was still alive. She would have been abused, but she would have been alive. Because he killed her after he had done many things with her for like a 48 hour period. But the news was surrounded the house. They, they people couldn't come and go. I, I had a, uh, at the time, my kids were, were really, really little and they had uh, speech therapy. They were autistic. So I had to take them to Poway every, um, like a couple times a week. And I would pass by um, the neighborhood and outside, it was just flooded. Like, I'm not even going into the suburb part. Like it was just flooded with news and people and drive-bys. And I'm just thinking, are there moments that you've had where if you could have done that, like kept the bubble down, either famous or the news didn't catch it, that if you could have followed your normal procedures, that maybe something would have been, something would have not happened maybe a subsequent murder like somebody talked and then that person got oh yeah there's there's i haven't had a case where like a witness was killed i know of some cases like that in my office i actually had to i had to recently um help on a case that was um it was up for an appeal and in the appeal process, it like brought me to another case because I was basically reading through why the case was being appealed. And there was a witness in the current case that basically got killed. And it looked like from the timeline of things, like when you look at all the materials, and this is just somebody from like the outside, like looking at like an older case, looking at everything, the timeline, the reports, this person that was their witness, they had obviously written his 
statement down, put it in their report. And there's ways to safeguard those things when you are going to court and when you're dealing with your case. Um, and I won't get into all the particulars, but you can you can safeguard names for a certain amount of time. At some point in time, any person that's on trial, they have a right to face their accuser. So you cannot keep somebody's name private forever. They're going to have to come out at some point um, and be a witness either on the stand or they are not a witness. Um, so the name will have to be turned over at some point in time and the lawyers argue over when that will be. So that that does happen, but there's a process for keeping it out for a certain amount of time. It appeared in this case that that was not kept out at whatever point in time. And one of these individuals that was in custody for the murder, he, he went pro per, they call it, where he takes his own case for a period of time. He is his own lawyer. So he fires his lawyer during his process. And when you fire your own lawyer, you're your own lawyer. And so you get all of your own discovery, which means you get all of your reports with all the names and all the information that your lawyer had. So it would appear, given the time frame that he went pro per, that he probably saw who this witness was, and it happened to be somebody from his same gang. So it would not be surprising that he could get that word back to somebody on the street. How does that not happen often? It takes a lot of work to protect people that give information. It, it really takes very conscientious police officers, which there are many, many, many. I, I don't think you can work a bad neighborhood without the majority of your cops being very smart and knowing how to do that. And there's like multiple layers of it. Like they get good information from people. And then when we come to the time where we write reports, all of my reports basically don't have address information and contact information for people. It's always like care of investigators, what you put down. And then they have, even when you make copies of things in court, then nobody gets anything. They have to come get it later. So there's all these things for that. And even their names at some point can be redacted out of reports. So they don't even have like first and last names. There's all kinds of layers of protection that can happen for people. And then, you know, it just gets determined by the court when it gets released as the court process moves along. And then you can relocate people and things like that. There's a lot of layers to those things too. But yeah, it's, it's, it is a risky thing and that's why it's really hard to solve a lot of those cases in like a violent neighborhood it's why all these criminal um enhancements have happened in like urban neighborhoods where there's a lot of gang violence because that's a real thing that was threatening those communities the gangsters would threaten the community and intimidate them and intimidate them not to come forward and be a witness. And it's very hard to solve crimes when that happens because 
Oh, yeah. Nobody wants to talk because they're in fear of what will happen to them if they talk. But if nobody talks, how do you how do you solve a case? So that's why things like technology become very important because if the person that's standing right there has a really hard time saying something and then you've got the eye in the sky of some type that captures something, it's like, thank goodness for that. So even if you do happen to have a witness, anything that could be verified by some other means, whether it's technology or you know, phone evidence or something, it's amazing. It's just a huge help. It just backs up somebody's story. So, and it also could back up a suspect story. You know, it could weed people in and out of your case, perhaps. So those things are all, you know, helpful too. But yeah, it's a, I haven't had one myself, but I have had to arrest people for that witness intimidation factor, which, you know, I hate when people mess with my witnesses. It's like my number one pet peeve. So I will go after those people every time I get evidence to the fact that they're doing that. Um, but it's, that becomes another you know, spin-off, you know, cluster of work and it's, it's tough, but it's definitely necessary. And you, and you got, and you, you've got to do that for people, you know, you, you owe them that if, if they're, if they're helping you and they're helping the case and they're, you know, you've got to make sure they're taken care of. Before I ask you this next question, I have to just tell you how I'm I'm so just taken aback by how you know, the grace with which you speak about this. You know, you have, I know you have extensive experience and you're so seasoned, but you can tell when you're you're talking about it how much you really do love what you do. And after 25 years, are you just getting started or are you are you at the point where you're like, enough of this shit? Because you really can tell how much you love it and it's it's wonderful to see, and I'm I'm so thankful that there that the people that in your neighborhood and that you've come into contact with have you because you're just you're just wonderful to listen to. I appreciate that. It's you know I I do love it. It um it's I can't see doing anything else. It's like in some ways it is it is it is exhausting sometimes for sure. Um, I do really enjoy my off time and I try to I try to replenish as much of my self as I can um, because it is a, it is emotionally taxing it is physically taxing uh, I like to call it kind of similar to dog ears but it's like kind of worse sometimes but I I couldn't see doing anything else I I just couldn't go back and do a different job assignment and find the same not even fulfillment, I would feel, I, I would feel like I was abandoning my cases and my people. I would feel like I was abandoning my calling in a, in a way. Um, the empathy part, I've always actually been good at. Like oddly, I just think that's part of, um, I think it's part of my personality. I actually have like an amazing, um, psychic astrologer friend and <laughs> I love that. she yeah she will um describe like I I'm an Aquarius by like sun sign birth like February is my birth month and so I'm an Aquarius but my moon and my rising sign are both cancer 
and she calls it the dreaded double cancer. And it's like that, like emotional, like caring for others, taking care of others. It's like that kind of thing. And I think that comes out in that, this work for me, like Aquarius is like the humanitarian and all that kind of stuff and creative. That's also cop-like. And yet there's this whole other side of it. And the empathy part I've always been good at. Sometimes people will say, how come you never turn your phone off? You know, how do you take these calls all the time? How do you talk to these people all the time on your off time? And I'm like, it's not that big of an intrusion when I compare it to, they don't have their person anymore. Like, I like I can't reconcile that with, I can take a minute to answer these questions or do it. Ever I need to do over here. You're not taking like, a deli order. I mean, yeah, <laughs> right. <laughs> yeah, I just, I, I guess, I just, I, I really empathize with where they're coming from and how they feel, and I've always felt that way, like from the beginning of working this assignment. And then I had a horrible, horrible misfortune myself of losing a friend of mine to murder in 2015, and that was a very different experience for me sitting in somebody else's shoes that like as a homicide investigator sitting there in like the victim's row of the courtroom and you know on that side of the fence was very it, it was just like another it's like being in another world you must have hated that that must have been an awful experience i'm sorry that you went through that that must have been just awful it it was horrible and that regard but it was that there was an amazing prosecutor on the case and she she allowed me to come to her office look at the evidence go through some stuff with her um and you know really kind of go through the case with her i knew her from she worked in the same field and the same office that i did prior to this happening. Um, and so we we knew each other from prior to this case. But if I didn't look at this stuff and and weigh in on if there was anything I thought I could see or contribute, I would never forgive myself. Like if I sat in court and you know saw it on the screen or heard it come out and questioning and could have done something to help her or assist her, I would have never forgiven myself. So that part, I, I was grateful that she, she allowed me to come in there and sit down and look through things and, you know, go through photos and, and, you know, go through the evidence and, you know, look at everything with her and, you know, it, it prepared me and then it allowed me to help prepare her family, which, you know, that's different when it's somebody you know also, um, as opposed to somebody in the job context. You know, I have become very close to some of the people in the job context, but it's it's just very different when it's like your own person, I guess. Sure. You're crying with. Yeah. Like, yeah, like it's a different versus four. 
Right. And it happened like in like, you know, 10 years after I've been working murders, you know, it's not like this happened. And then I grew up one day and I decided to become a homicide detective. You know, like this was the, not the driving force behind my career path. It was like, this happened 10 years in and you're like, yeah, it's kind of odd. Like it's an odd time. And it happened really at an odd time in my life. I was about to start like one of my biggest cases I've had in my career and start the trial that week. All these crazy things and you're like, what the Murphy's like, Law, right? Like, I'd like my astrologer friend to look at that. Yes. Right <laughs> that week on, like, what does that look like on that crazy chart? Because that's got to be very so. difficult for a juror to look at somebody who's a man and see what, and if they've done horrific things and not see them as a man, then see them as a child doing it. Like, it's like if I was looking at someone and I got all this evidence put in front of me and I'm thinking to myself, like, how do you judge it now as a 14 year old doing it when the person is sitting across from you as an adult, as in a male? Like, I don't, I think I would have a tough time being able to go back and see this person doing it as a child. Do you know what I mean? Like, and, and say, oh, they're innocent because they were a child. I would write, I, not that I would write away. I, I would hope to God I'd be able to be objective, but it would be very hard to not right away see them doing all these things as the person they are today, not the person they were three years ago. I think that would screw right. somebody very much. Yeah, I, I think the disparity in age is probably not that broad when it comes to juveniles now. Like juveniles, because of the change in California law, there's a lot of new ones for juveniles. They're staying in juvenile court much more prevalently than they were before. They, especially in murder cases before, it was not that hard to get like a 17 or 18 year old fitnessed up to adult court. Um, you would go to a fitness hearing and you would have to present evidence of, you know, their prior criminal history and potentially, you know, circumstances of the case, whether, you know, gang related, um, certain factors, they look at five different things in, in dealing with juveniles to determine whether they want to prosecute them in juvenile court or whether they think they're fit for adult court. And some of that stuff has to do with their background and how they grow up as a youth, like if they have trauma and history of bad things in their past, they're going to take a lot of consideration into, into that history. And they may not send them to adult court. Um, that makes it kind of difficult on these gang cases because in like an urban environment, a lot of the kids have that. We have like helicopter missing guy. Huh. Is that what that is? Yeah. I was like, like what is happening? <laughs> yeah. It's like the sound effects. It's like sound effect button. Helicopter. Yeah. So there's there's a lot of that. Um, you could you could argue everybody has a rough, you know, childhood there so do the victims in those cases like nobody's got that easy so 
should everybody just get this light juvenile sentence? You know, I don't know that that's the answer to reforming anything, but if they fitness them up to juvenile court or up to adult court, you know, you're talking a difference of like 17 or 18. And then they're probably going to court when they're maybe 19 or 20. That They probably don't look that different. A 14-year-old is probably not going to adult court um, unless he does something really crazy. Nowadays, it's probably not ever happening. Um, but the maximum age, like a juvenile now can get sentenced to their juvenile um, juvenile justice, you know, centers, they're, they're getting out at 25. So if you kill somebody at 17 and you stay in juvenile court, you're out at 25. And there's, you know, I don't, I don't know that eight years for somebody's life. I don't know that, you know, I don't know that that's a, uh, an appropriate sentence, even for a juvenile. Right. Sure. Um, you know, when you when you make blanket like legal decisions saying, okay, all juveniles are going to have this, or all adults are going to have that. If you say all juveniles are going to stay in juvenile court, well, then guess who's going to do the murders? Right. Exactly. Exactly. There's all no blanket. Never scenarios never work. Yeah. And so, you know, we're having in Southern California, some of those kind of um, arguments right now in our justice system, because we have a, a new district attorney and a lot of those things are coming up because they're trying to change um, a lot of the way cases are filed. Um, oh, I saw that. The way things are sentenced, the way their cash bail system works. I mean, it just there's like nine new directives that change everything about law enforcement. And it's kind of like turned the entire system on its head. And the just the number one thing is that it's just not at all favorable to the victims. And there needs to be some, some more work on that. Um, but somehow, um, it's it's still in progress, but that's going to be a real rough one with the uh, the way the system is right there. Because you know, like I said, there's there's a you know there's there's degrees of that where yeah maybe a juvenile should have you know some leeway when it comes to certain things, but I don't know that you can you know say that. It's just a blanket, like no going to adult court and no getting a sentence, you know, past the age of 25. You know, I think you're setting yourself up for a system where, you know, every older gang member is going to put guns in younger gang members' hands and they're going to make them, you know, the, the main worker bees. And Absolutely. Logical. It makes sense. I wouldn't. Yes. <laughs> right. Of course. I mean, of course. And I like how that you, you focus on, you're not talking about your job. You're not talking about adding another credit to your, to nailing the bad guy. You're actually talking about the victims. You're not even talking about your own record as a detective. You're, you're saying the media and everybody else really talks about, oh, you know, we need to have leniency on these people because of, you know, bad homes, bad this. But what about the victims? They came from a bad home. 
And you're very focused on the fact that these victims need a voice. And right now they're being drowned out. They're, they're killed to begin with. And then they have no voice because the justice system is being changed to fit the, the poor guy that did the crime. And what is a little scary to me, and it's the good and the bad, California is one of those states that when things start in California, eventually it starts to roll through the United States. So we we start smoking bans in restaurants, and that's good. Uh, yeah, I'm sure some people will say no, and that starts to roll. But then you start doing some of these justice, uh, the things that you sent us, I mean, I started reading that and I was like, okay, I, this is even my field, but what is wrong? And I could tell you were yeah. just, you, yeah. I know yeah, you said it to me, like, check this shit out. Like, <laughs> like, yeah. like it's a crazy slippery slope for sure, because it is, it is, you start reading it and you're like, this can't be, this cannot even be true. And then you're like, this is insanity. I mean, you know, I get that there is some, in general, there is some, there is a systemic, you know, inequality in, in our world, in our society, all those things. But when you're talking about straight crime issues, if you even just look at the statistics, like, stop focusing on all these people that are incarcerated. Well, who did they do what they did their crime to? And then you look at that and you're like, okay, it's in general, the races are the same. So then you're like, well, wait a minute. So what about these folks over here, these victims that are also the same race and come from the same community in general as the folks that are now incarcerated? So now I'm supposed to be reforming and worrying about the incarcerated people yet what about these community members over here they're from the same community and they're the same race and i'm saying let these incarcerated people out and let them just come back and then i've taken into account nothing of what these folks have gone through what they've lost i just think that that's it's it's kind of crazy to think that Nobody talks about the big picture or the full picture. They're just saying one part of it. Just like, I mean, you know, all of 2020, the big focus was all of these protests and all of this inequality. And people would ask me, well, what do you think the solution is? And what do you think about this? What do you think about this, you know, this group over here or that group over here? And I would tell people whether it's a small group or a big group or whoever, I would say, well, whether you believe that there is this happening or not, if you feel like you want to help somebody or you want to do something or contribute something, the best way you can contribute in any fashion that will be helpful on multiple levels is to find something close to you. Everybody's got like in their own neighborhood, a neighborhood that's not so far away, that's not as good. Uh, maybe it's socioeconomics are worse than yours. Maybe they've got, you know, a more problematic youth situation, whatever the case may be. Right? Everybody has a neighborhood near enough to their own that's got some kind of issue. 
go find an organization in that area, contribute directly instead of doing some crazy clickbait on the internet or social media or some stuff that you don't even know, or you don't even know who's backing it or who's in charge of it or any of that. You, you know nothing about it other than it's on social media. You, you can go to this one that's nearby you. You can contribute. You can follow up on it because it's right there near you. And if you help somebody in a neighborhood that's near you, not only are you helping that, but if those people weren't helped, where are they going to do their crime? They're going to do it in their neighborhood or they're going to go to the next best place, which is your neighborhood. So you're kind of helping both of your neighborhoods at the same time. So why would you not want to contribute directly if you're if you want to contribute? And people were like, oh, that's a pretty good idea. I'm like, well, yeah, then you know where it's going. Sure. Rising tide rises all ships, right? Like it just makes sense. People right. common sense escapes people. So now when you think about these new directives, there are new cops every day, right? There's people coming out of the academy just starting out. The 20-year-olds. Detective Stacy in 1996 versus now, like, how does that shape you differently? Like, it's got to, like, you've been molded from hard work, like, no technology to all this technology. It must be, must be very frustrating for you to see these new cops coming in with this as their starting point, right? Like, that's got to be, because they're going to be molded very differently from how you work. Oh, for sure. I mean, it's almost even harder to to describe it like right now. Like they're in an era where everybody hates them. It's it's even mm. it's kind of even worse. But if I could just like back up to even before 2020, like my favorite thing would be to talk to the officers about like their body cameras because those things they're like golden and most officers don't want to wear them. They nobody wants to move to that era where they feel like oh god it's like big brother like I'm wearing this thing and it's it captures everything but when you look at it from like an investigator standpoint you're like yeah it captures everything like I have <laughs> how excited she got when she said yeah that. <laughs> that, that, that's true right. for you you're approaching a crime scene and there might be something that you because the victim's family like you were talking about at the beginning the victim's mm-hmm. family hears it they're coming towards you on yeah. one end, you're thinking, I don't have to do a cold call and tell them that their family member's dead, so at least I'm able to do this. But maybe mm-hmm. you missed something that you can look at. Well, even somebody that doesn't think that, like, they don't even think to tell you something. And I even had a case that went to trial, and the, the district attorney was looking at one of our body camera. It might even have not have been body camera. It might have been an in-car camera at that time. And she was looking at it, and she's like, who's this lady? Who's Who's she? Because she's running around screaming and yelling, but she yells our suspect's name at some point. And you hear it in the video. And I'm like, she had no idea I knew who this woman was. And I'm like, oh yeah, that's our other witness's mother. And so she was like, oh my God. So we ended up with two witnesses instead of one witness because she saw her running around on the video and then she heard what she said. And, you know, it's just like you get these little trinkets and it's just like, it's amazing. So when you can tell the young officer, like, hey, instead of looking at it as like, big brother is watching me, make it your friend. Like, instead of it being the enemy, you know, like we had a scene where it was probably an internal murder 
um, same gang killing their person. Um, this guy is on the phone and it's, these officers are standing near him and he is talking about stuff. He's not screaming and yelling about rivals. He's talking about something that sounds like they had an argument earlier in the day and they weren't supposed to be there. They were told not to hang out. It, all this stuff. And so when we walk up, I'm just like, don't move. Keep getting, keep getting this. And I said, and don't make him get off the phone. Let him keep, let him keep talking to his people because they're going to keep calling because they're asking him what happened to the guy that's over here who's now deceased. So I'm like, just stand here and just keep capturing this because this guy is never going to want to come to court, right? It's an internal case. He's not going to come and snitch on his own people. Not going to do this. But the video is going to do it for him. And that's what we had to do. We had to use that. And, you know, it's just like one of these things where you pick up the, the evidence and it's like, is this you? <laughs> yeah. Yes. And then they're like, okay. And then they just roll tape. And then it's just like, it does it for him. And it's just like, you know, it just takes the whole load off of his shoulders, which is just amazing. I mean, because I have another, you know, case that's internal and two people are deceased and I will be lucky if I ever get it to court because I, I do not have anyone cooperating. One of the people that I know knows what happened. He's now dead. It, you just, you know, I tell people all the time, knowing who did it is not really the problem of solving some of these cases, it's like proving it, like getting it to where it's fileable in court. That's that's like really the trick to some of the some of the cases. That's At least some of the gang ones. Yeah. So now from yeah. your overall, all the years that you've had, can you share any of the one or two of the um crazy? <laughs> yeah, like one of the bizarre like, like cases that really just made an impact on you or or is that are they all very like oops sorry all very tight lipped where you can't speak about anything oh boy um you, I mean, you don't have these in your back pocket <laughs> it's it's tough to say because now uh, my my only concern would be like with this this new thing with this with the one directive that we have is that anybody that has served 15 years of their sentence can petition the court to resentence them. So my only concern would be if any of these cases gotcha. somehow can come back, which I would hope that a court will shut this down at some point. But um, I, I do think it's interesting if people haven't been raised or lived in a gang community, I don't think they have, they hear the word, they see it on TV. They don't have a, they don't know what you're talking about. They actually don't know how it is to live that way. I grew up in Oceanside, which was back in the 80s and 90s and still very heavily gang for a, for a city, for a, for a city that size, not LA. I mean, LA is huge, but like we're right. just a coastal San Diego town. It was heavily gang activity and I would go to school and there would be things that you would hear at the high school. I would walk in the halls at El Camino. Like you're just like, okay, I'm not going to say anything. I mean, like the, when I was going to school, there was a girl that got shot. They couldn't find her brother. 
They went to go kill him. They found her. She's dead. That was it. She was part of my class. She's gone. But that was that was the rule. Like that was the rule of the streets. Like we're gonna come find you, and if you don't make yourself available, we're gonna get your family. But most of the time, it was the same crime on crime, just different side of the street. Yeah, it's it's really interesting the way like in like Southern California, some of just the different courthouses. There's there's so many, but you have you know, your your jury pool comes from the neighboring areas like that surround like that court area. And like amongst like us that investigate this stuff, sometimes we laugh about the differences in the the juries and like having a case in some of these different buildings because it's so different. Like if the jury you, of your peers is almost a joke because it's like, these aren't their peers. <laughs> well, I, I often wonder in Southern California in general, like if I just have a day off and if I go down by the beach, it, it would appear to like, be like, nobody works. Like there's, and not just in 2020 time, but like every day you're like, what do all these people do for a living that there's this many people out on like a random Tuesday or whatever? You're like, how how is this possible? So yeah, that that along with the jury of the peers is like, I don't know whose peers they are, but you know, I want to be in that group, whatever that you know, every day <laughs> is the beach day group. You know, that's the group I want to be in. But it's like you go to these different courthouses, and if you have like a a a trial like in you know downtown court, your jury pool can come from all kinds of places around downtown and kind of all over Los Angeles area. And you get the weirdest jury pool sometimes. And then sometimes they are like what you're saying. They don't understand. Like you really have to break down like a gang murder, like what's going on. And you, you like wish you could just break it down. Like the movies every time you're like, in you know colors when they slide down the street with the van everyone knows what's happening when the van door slides open everyone that's watching the movie knows what's happening next someone's busting out a big gun people are getting shocked it's it there's nobody as surprised at what's happening in the next scene but you you know you go to these juries in downtown court sometimes and i swear they look at you like you're talking about the planet mars and then you go to like compton courthouse and then, you know, you got jury members nodding their head. They understand everything that's happening. Right. They, they are on point with every, everything because they, they live around the area enough that they, they understand what's going on. They've seen it. They know somebody that's seen it. It's just, they have a much better understanding of what you're, you're talking about. It, it's just, it's so crazy and then I had my friend's case was tried in Torrance court and it seemed like everybody on the jury was retired you know and they were all in Hawaiian shirts and I was like okay this is kind of different too I was like it was just a weird wow. like just spattering of all of southern California and just right how geographically things are different in all these different places it's like with OJ's case, didn't they say that he wasn't tried by his peers? Like, like the people that would have been his peers were not the people that were in the jury. Yes, 
Yeah. And so, you know, that. They saw the jukes. They like, they didn't see the be like a lot of people were used to him and he rubbed elbows with a lot of shishi people, not people that were on the jury. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it is, you know, it is just really, uh, it, it's really, it's really different. Plus just the, that case had so many things like that. They also had, you know, complexities with like what people see on TV versus what they think is supposed to happen. And then, you know, the whole big, you know, now you hear people talking about, well, we chose this because, you know, the the racial situation in the city at the time. And, you know, you, you hear that kind of stuff and you're like, okay, that's kind of crazy. I mean, but in a lot of ways, that stuff does happen. And, you know, I've seen some of that stuff happen in some of our cases in, in Los Angeles. And it, you know, it's, it's kind of like what I was saying about the death penalty. It's like people's conscience comes into play and that's not what they're supposed to be deciding on. They're supposed to be following the rule of law and following the jury instructions and all of those things. But then, you know, they they start splitting hairs like they do they're looking at the the driver in a drive-by shooting versus the shooter you know how they play that out sometimes in their head and how they play it out if those two people aren't sitting at the table together you know versus if they're all on trial together sometimes it's easier for them to put the story together in their head and and you know it's it's a very interesting situation to watch because if you have to put somebody on by themselves, it's it's not really easy sometimes for a jury to convict with just certain factors. Like if they're looking at only a driver, they start to rationalize in their head like, well, but they didn't pull the trigger. But that's not what the law says. The law says you're guilty of 187 if you participated in this crime by doing A, B, or C, whatever that, you know, the facts of that case might have been. But then they start, other human factors come into play. So it's kind of interesting to watch that where, you know, I use the bank robbery example sometimes. If I break it down like a bank robbery and I say the three of us go in to do a bank robbery, I'm the driver, you know, you guys go into the bank, one of you's loading up the bag and one of you's got the gun and, you know, shoots the guard. We're all going for murder during the bank robbery. Nobody has an issue with the driver in that scenario. They're like, oh, no, they need that driver because they can't get away. You know, if, if Stacy's not driving, how how can they commit the bank robbery? They, they can't get there. They can't get away. So they don't they don't make the same argument in their head then you're like well how do you get into rival gang territory how do you get out of rival gang territory it's it's kind of interesting to watch the wheels of the brain turn and you know sometimes i almost wonder if there should be a different level of penalty involved for some of these crimes where they can figure in some of these things for that element that happens in that jury room. It's almost like the, when you see a, like a ref make up a call, like it feels like these people are almost like when you're talking about like 
what was happening in the race relations at the time. So then they made the decision, had nothing to do with the case, but they wanted to kind of, you know, make up for or, yes. you know, apply their own sort of justice. And it's sort of like, oh, well, we missed it. We shouldn't have called strike three. So, you know, that one that was on on the lines, we're just going to yeah. let that one, uh, you know, ball four. And it's like, we're not we're not calling balls and strikes here. Like you can't you can't make up what you want to be, you know, exactly. what what is happening in society with your verdict on, a you know, on this case especially when it's like. <laughs> exactly. And that's, and that's the thing. I mean, even, even with some of the things that have happened and you see like all the, the fallout from 2020 madness and, and, you know, there's not a, a law enforcement officer in the world that would say anything that happened with George Floyd was correct. But then, you know, the answer is not to then start taking responsibility for all police wrongs everywhere. and some of the things that some of these leaders of law enforcement did, it's like, if you have been leading in police reform and you've been doing some of these things, you point out what you've done well and maybe where you need to still do some work. And you say, hey, you know, we've been doing a lot of police reform, but by the pulse of the community, obviously more work needs to be done. We need our community leaders to come together we need to still work on this. This is obviously still something that is weighing heavily on the community's mind. And we all need to work together because that's the only way it's going to ever be fixed. It has to be a collaborative. And, you know, taking blame or trying to take blame for stuff that you didn't even do, as some of the police departments were doing, was even more insane because then you're like, no, now that now you're getting people that want to scream defunding and all of this other stuff. And it's like, that's not helpful because now they don't even recognize what you did do in reform. And you don't have them coming to the table trying to work with you. And now you've got a spike in crime. It's up everywhere 30%. And you actually need a collaborative between your community and the police more than ever because it's out of control out there. So how are you going to, you know, tackle this crime problem without their help it's just it's like it's snowballed into such a bigger issue so i don't know i think we need like really really strong leaders and really strong community leaders to like pull together and it's like we got to stop focusing on the, the stuff that happened and we got to call the strikes strikes and call the balls balls Thanks. like your analogy and and how do we get everybody to throw better pitches and how do we get the game to be played better on all fronts and let's work to make it happen. And, and that's, it. that's just what we got to do. We got to like work on the now and there's all this back and forth about before and, you know, let's let everybody out because we locked too many people up in the eighties. What? No, let's not let everyone out. There's bad people in there. Let's not just unlock the doors. That's not a good plan. Right. It kind of reminds me of yeah. getting back to basics. Like I know O'Malley and I have spoken before, like you, you speak about community organizers and people being more involved. Like I find it with having three kids, I have 10, 13 and 16 and neither one of them could name the local, you know, supermarket manager, police captain, fire chief. Like if there was a time when we were kids, everybody was looking out. 
you knew that all eyes were on you. And if, you know, the guy that ran the site, Sean, who is the manager of the recycling center, if he was in town and he saw you doing something, he'd say, hey, knock it off. Like they don't have those community leaders anymore. Like even though they, you know, they had the title of, you know, recycling center manager and this guy and that guy, they were community leaders. They, they were staples in the community who set the bar and you had to make sure that you stayed within the limitations of what you were allowed to do. Otherwise, being called out was enough. Like they don't have that anymore. And I think that's such a shame. Yeah. Yeah, I agree. There's, yeah, there's a, there's definitely a, a need to to get back to the just simple things and hopefully, you know, rebuild. And, you know, the, even just having people that are involved, you know, when people talked about like funding stuff and putting money into this and putting money into that, what will ensure that it thrives you know like you could throw money at something like even if it's like you know your own household or your kids or whatever like what what makes it something that's that they take care of is it's it's gotta like it's gotta be a collaborative that like well what do you think would be a good idea or how are we going to take care of this or what do you think the rules should be it's like if you're involved in the process of how something gets started you're a lot more likely to keep it up, keep it going, that kind of thing. It's like, if you just build something beautiful and like, just let everybody have at it, is somebody going to take care of it? I mean, Mm -hmm. I've watched people debilitate their own houses, so I don't know that that's going to do anything. So if you just throw money at it and do nothing that gets any involvement, I don't think you can fix anything. But if you ask people for ideas and then incorporate their ideas in to your planning and your and your projects, I think you get buy-in. You know, everybody wants to see part of their project with kind of their own stamp on it. Well, that's how you, you get somebody involved is, you know, really getting them involved. I think when you get yeah. people, like I think to your point, people who are emotionally invested, it's the the end result is so much more important. Do people approach you very positively knowing that you're a cop and that you're like in today's day and age with the way people treat police officers? Like whenever I see a cop, I cannot go into Dunkin' Donuts or the bagel store. If I see an officer in, I'm always, I always pay. I just can't. I'm so appreciative of everything they they do after. I mean, I had a rip experience with 9-11 and my, my appreciation for officers and firefighters and first responders in any capacity. I know that I'm certainly more biased than, than most, maybe. I don't know, because I've had a, a, like a very, very, like I have a very emotional connection. But do, do you find that people are more or less very like welcoming to you and appreciative and go out of their way? Or do you find it's the opposite? You know what? I, I have, I have some of both experiences. I like, I, I think that in general, people will paint the picture that that certain areas of the city that they don't like the police, and that couldn't be further from the truth. Like, I have actually really enjoyed working in the rougher neighborhoods, and you know, 
you might have incidents where you're dealing with aggression from the community if they're upset about something, if there's clearly some kind of incident where, you know, you had to take some kind of, you know, forceful action or whatever. But for the most part, you have like a community where they also want the violence and the things that are happening there to be curtailed and they they want the police to be getting rid of the problems that are happening in their neighborhood. And it's just a matter of like, how does that happen and how how is it coming together? Um, you get a lot of like media attention, I think, on the few negative incidents and not on the positive ones. Like we had um, in Southern California, they had uh, driven out one of these really proactive units from like one of our very high crime areas. And the community was not the driving force of that. It was kind of like the politicians and people that got a hold of like one video or some kind of like small thing and then like the community's like we didn't ask for this unit to be gone like crime mm -hmm. is up like it was it's a lot of like misunderstanding and a lot of like I think a lot of like false rhetoric like that gets passed around um so even down in areas where I think the vast majority of people think that the police are not liked. I think the police are liked very much by people. That's good. Now, to hear. That's nice to hear, especially yeah. for you, because you take it so it, it affects you so deeply, and you are emotionally connected to it. I remember one of the things I had read that you um, had written, and I thought it was very profound. How you had the way you had described it was that you're you're amazed by the um, the strength and fortitude you had written of the victims' families in certain tragedies, oh. and you find them truly amazing and what they go through in certain cases. And these are the people you work for. Like you took it as a perspective that you work for them. Like you're here for them. You know, because usually people go, oh, what path did you choose? And I did this because it led me here. You don't look at it that way. Your perspective is very, very different. You look at it as your calling is to be there for them. And a lot, a lot of people, you don't usually hear people speak about themselves and their career and what they love doing as a service to other people, even though we see it as a service, of, you know, you provide a service and stuff, you actually emotionally, like the way you project it comes from a, a position of, I do this for them. And that you're, and even though you do it for them, you're still taken aback and amazed at them. Like it's, it's very nice. So I'm very happy to hear that, that you're received as well as you are, because I would, I mean, I would hate it if you weren't, but I'm, gl right. I'm glad that it's not something that, you know, you're confronted with because it's, it's, it's American, right? It's like a nice thing to hear. Yeah. I mean, it's like, for example, like in court, sometimes you'll have, you'll have like the defendants will be sitting there and they will look at the family members and they'll just, they're looking smug and they'll just, they, you know, it's like, you already took their family member away from them. Like, why would you even need to make a face at them? Like I'm, furious for the family like I don't even know how they keep it together I, I don't 
I don't know if I would be able to keep it together if I were in their shoes. And to like just the, the grace and the 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 ability that these people have to just sit there with this class and they just they're just bigger people. And it's it's amazing to me just the their ability to keep it together when I mean I can't imagine what they would be feeling on the inside that they what they really want to do to these people, you know, but that, and I mean, when you hear somebody's family member talk about forgiving somebody in their victim impact statement, like at, at a sentencing, I, I'm just floored and blown away when they say things like that. Like I, I may be able to accept certain things when they happen. I don't know that I'm giving out my forgiveness. I, I just don't know that I'm doing that. Um, maybe in some cases, I, I, I don't know. I just, I just don't know that I'm doing that. I think that the way that people look so callously on violence in some of these societies, like they just, they pick up these guns. They don't think about what they're doing. They just, they don't think about their consequences until they're caught. And that's just because they're caught. They don't, they're not really sorry for their actions. And that is, it's kind of appalling to me sometimes mm -hmm. just to watch them be upset that they're caught and not have the gravity to understand that they took somebody off this planet and they've damaged these people forever. And then to watch these families go into court and you know have waited so long to get there and to deal just with all the bureaucracy and the crap that goes with just getting there and then they just keep themselves together so well and there's they truly are amazing and I'm so proud of them when I when I'm there I feel like I feel like a mama bird with like all their like little kids and they're these are not kids they're they're grown people some of them are kids but they are you know, for the most part, you know, adults and older than me sometimes. And, you know, and they are just, they're just amazing that they can keep it together and that they do so well. And I just, I don't know. I just, I feel like all the things in policing that you can't control, like, you know, who's the chief and who's the next chief and what, you know, what's the mayor of your city doing and all these things. Like, I hate politics and yet it's a political job and then we're not allowed to speak our political opinions. And, you know, so that's all what it is. I, I can't really speak on it. But then I, at the end of the day, I just don't, I, I like to say, I don't care if that stuff gets acknowledged or not. It's like, I care if the victim's family is upset about something, that's what I care about. And that's how I picture that part. Like I, I work for them. If I've solved their case, I feel like I've done what I can do to give them some semblance of, I don't even want to say closure necessarily because they're, I describe it to them sometimes as like a hundred piece puzzle. You now have a piece that's missing. So you're going to put your 99 pieces together. You can still make a beautiful picture, but it will never, ever be the same again. Yeah but you can still make a, a beautiful life picture. You just have to still be able to put it together. 
and you're never going to feel 100% the same again. It's just, yeah, it's, it's impossible. You know, there's a piece missing. They're very lucky to have you. And the people that you bring up through the ranks that I don't even do you, I I don't know if they know how blessed they are to have you Mm -hmm. teaching them and leading them. Because I think from, for me and O'Malley and the people whose lives you've touched, I think they definitely know it because it's, you know, I just listening to you and hearing like the different ways you, you read situations and apply what you've experienced to how you go about doing things just from like crime scenes and the way you think methodically, like that's inspiring to me. Like I want to make sure that I incorporate, I, I instill that in my kids and I incorporate that into my daily life on my own. And hopefully lead through example. I hope the people that you're bringing up through the ranks know how valuable they have it with you because it's just, it's, it's wonderful to hear. I, I appreciate your time so much. Honestly, it's listening to you speak about this is just, is just wonderful. And I hope every single listener we have, they'll probably go back and play it again, just because you, you really are incredible. Well, that's um, really it's really sweet of you. I really appreciate it. It's true. I, I, it's I really learned from some fantastic people myself. I really, I was very fortunate to have people that, you know, I feel trained me well and watched over me to make sure I followed, you know, certain things well. And, you know, I just, I don't know. I, I, I look at all of the things in life and in, in police work too, like a big toolbox. And I think, you know, you take little pieces from all the all the good parts of the the people and the paths that have crossed you, and you know, you find what works for you. And and sometimes it's like not always going to work in the same situation for the you know same type of person or thing or place. So you know, you just got to have to got to be open to going back into the box and find the next item or, you know, I'm still finding more to put in there and trying to, you know, learn more things about myself and, and, and actually, you know, learn more from some of the people that are younger also. Like I need to, I need to like sometimes learn to let them, let them do it. And, you know, that's going to be my new task. <laughs> I'm gonna get a new partner soon, so oh wow, it's gonna be less. Uh, it's gonna be the new less doing type A. That's <laughs> the thing. I, I was gonna ask just because I mean you're you're not a B cop. You're not you know patrolling the streets. Um, you're you're not looking over the neighborhood like you know in the beginning years of um, a lot of careers. But you've stayed in a certain community working these murder cases, how have you been able to form relationships and have teaching moments with people who are, um, you know, more patrol, like you have to run into these same people or, you know, a, a bit, I mean, you're obviously in court, you're, you're at work putting together. So you're not in the field every day. I would, I would assume, I mean, maybe a little bit, but you're not that person that's, you represent them so well, but only sadly after they become victims, after somebody has taken a piece from them. So how do you, how do you spread this knowledge and this um, frame of mind, this mindset to the people who actually are 
day in and day out, just making sure that this neighborhood, this area is safer so you don't have to maybe come out as often as you do. Right. I think that, you know, there's a lot of interaction with our, like our regular patrol cops and even our, like our specialized unit officers, like just in whether you're at a crime scene or, you know, you're, you're going to talk to those guys out there. And even as you go through some of the things in your investigation, if, if I'm going through some of like the, the body camera footage or whatever, like I've had some incidents where like I have found good video and I like, I like to go and I like to share it with other people or I like to go back and find the officer and tell them, or I'll email guys and I'll tell them stuff sometimes that I see in the, the videos. Um, good, bad, or sometimes it's just funny. Um, we have this technological thing. So the way these cameras are set up is that they roll backward. Like say I start an incident right now and I get in a fight. The tape will actually start 30 seconds ago or now I don't know how they, how far back they roll, but they start prior to so that they can capture anything that happened before. It's just like something in the mechanism of the technology. So I have like a favorite crime scene. I actually was downloading the tape for somebody else, another um, unit in my squad, because you could only at the time download them if you were a supervisor. So I had to download the tape for him. So I go to pull it up and they were at the police station and the, the police officer was a training officer and he had a brand new rookie. And so when the tape rolls back, he's sprinting to the car. And I was like, this is like your like dream video. You wish you could show any jury, like, cause he looks like the most amazing cop. He's running from the station to the car. Then he gets in the car. And then when they get out, he's like, you could see him directing his, rookie he's but he's basically doing it all because she doesn't know what she's doing it she must be like kind of on day one and he's setting up the crime scene tape there's a massive crowd on the body he's separating everybody like he just looks like super cop so then you know you're going and you're you try to write like a commendation for that officer and then you you try to like hit roll call when he's there and you you know you got to do like cop harassment stuff and you got to like put them on blast and you're like I just saw the best video ever and I hope that you know these guys solve this case because I want this thing to play in front of juries and you know this was awesome and he's run into the car and you know because you know the old timers they're not running to the car yeah. they might go in a hurry but their hurry is a little slower than this guy this guy just looked like if you were filming it for a commercial that's what it would look like and you're like like, does that really happen? Because often you get like the kind where you're you're getting them driving and they're they're driving code three, so the lights and sirens and all the craziness, and they're being like typical like amped up cop screaming at all the drivers, you know, mm. and you know probably like you do in traffic, you know, like get out of the way, yeah. move to the fucking right, that's what you <laughs> move to the right, and, you know, you're you're doing that kind of stuff. Well, that's yeah. on the tape. You know, <laughs> and you're like, oh, I wish the jury wasn't going to hear this. Yeah. <laughs> That's what you think, but it's just like, you know, 
I was doing it when I was a patrol cop. I sure the heck wasn't sitting in the car driving this Daisy, you know. I was, I was like, the right. everybody was a dummy, you know. Everybody on the road was a dummy when I was trying to get where I was going. <laughs> I think they still might be when I'm driving my regular car. But, you know, it's like it's like those kind of things. So, you, you know, you try to tell people when they're doing good things and you try to tell them when you notice something not so great, like, hey, so I noticed you pulled your car up and you parked it like tactically. That's great at a tactical call. But when you're at the homicide scene and the body is there and your digital in-car video is like front and center in your car and the body's in the middle of the street and then you turned your car to the right and now I can't see anything except the back of the police motorcycle. And that's what the video shows for like the whole hour. You can only hear like chaos. That must be frustrating. Yeah. And so you see nothing. So then you just try to say, hey, um, this is so-and-so from homicide and, you know, not to be nitpicky or whatever, but I just wanted to let you know. And, you know, what would be so amazing is if you had just turned your wheel the other way, I might have seen the whole thing. You're very nice. <laughs> that would be a very nice. I would find it very I, difficult to be that kind. I would sure. be like, look, dumbass. And I'm sure that wasn't me in the beginning. Yeah, so <laughs> I've learned to be better, I think, because I sure have been the yelling, screaming person plenty of times. <laughs> that person comes out sometimes. I, I won't say that that person never comes out. Um, I had somebody embarrass me in front of a DA once because they wanted to, like, they were tired and they had worked graveyard and they wanted to go home or whatever. And they're like, well, am I going to testify today or am I going to have to come back tomorrow? And I'm like, hey, you're getting paid to be here. And, you know, you could just come every day instead of being on call. And, you know, we could take care of that problem. What are, you, like, what are you doing? Like, I know you're tired. Like, everybody's tired. But you're actually getting paid. So. Yeah. <laughs> but, yeah. I, sometimes I try to be nice when I have to be, I guess, critical of patrol cops that I need them to actually do stuff for us. I think that that's when I'm nicer. If it's our people, oh, I'm probably nasty. I'm probably like, hey, dummy. No, I don't mm-hmm. say dummy. But I, I'm, that's yeah. more of the, the attitude probably. It's like, oh, right. my God. You know, yeah. What were you thinking? You know, yeah, <laughs> yeah. It's probably it's probably a little more of that. Yeah, yeah. But, well, that's I think that's how it is in life. We bust our friends' balls all the time, and then if you actually need somebody, if you're smart at least, you need somebody to stop a behavior. You know, even if they don't realize it, but it's infuriating to you, like the the wheel being turned the wrong way, like you know criticizing and telling him how dumb he is like he just might not you know want to to turn the wheel the next time he might think oh you know what she was a real or you know that guy was a real whatever i'm just gonna i'm gonna it's gonna face a tree the whole time (laughs) i just i mean that's just you know sure yeah we used to crack up at my one of my um old bosses that's now retired used to like freak out at crime scenes because we have these crime scene canopies that they set up for um to to conceal the public from seeing you know the horrible crime scene and i don't know what it is about like these canopies but 
there's either a lot of people in the police department that have either never been to a barbecue <laughs> or a softball game or whatever and dealt with these canopies but surely you think in a very very busy area that this shouldn't happen they used the canopy before but they don't extend the arms of the canopy so you've got this canopy like three feet off the ground instead of like all the way up and it used to drive my old boss just bonkers and he would just he would arrive and the canopy would be like set up like a mini tent and he would just, I, I don't know what, you know, he'd be pulling in from home. He obviously already had his coffee. He was not mad when he pulled up, but then he gets out of the car and sees that he would just, <laughs> like fireworks would go off and he would just be yelling at people. It was just, he couldn't help it. But I set up a little, mini canopy at his retirement as a joke like, <laughs> out of my because it was like so maddening to him and I just yeah it's the weirdest thing that you know happens but it's like yeah you gotta like pull those legs open mm -hmm. it's kind of crazy but yeah, yeah absolutely. But, you know you get the opposite end of guys doing really fantastic things like I I had some like gang officers that had um body-worn video and they helped me identify a suspect and then I was, I needed more evidence. And I was like, Hey, so in the video, you know, you can see, it looks like, you know, you, you see his clothing really well. And then you can see his shoes sort of well. And I'm like, you say, you see this guy at the park every day. I'm like, I don't know if you can get a close up of those shoes. They're like, we gotcha. We gotcha. And I, I am not kidding. These guys like were writing their little information card and they're dropping the pen, bending over, getting me like perfect shots of these guys. <laughs> and I'm like, these guys are amazing. So these guys, like, I feel like if you talk to these guys and you tell them what you need, they'll they'll get it for you. Like they they, they want, want to help you. Yes, yeah. they do. And even with all of the craziness going on in policing right now mm. like you go to my station and there it's busy in the streets and everything and there's still foot pursuits and car chases and like guys are still doing police work these guys want to work they want to do good things they want to police the community that you know there's for as bad as the overall tone is for police officers right now you know, there's still people that want to work. So that's refreshing and good to see because it's it, it's happening out there. Like stuff is still happening. And they and they we need guys to be like that. Girls, we need we need officers to be like that. And you know, there's a lot of people like very um down and out and bitter and upset and you know how did we start in March of last year as one of the most, you know, loved and part of the essential workers and, you know, everybody's like, oh yeah, medical and cops and mm -hmm. fire. And, and now it's like, we're vilified for the whole world, you know, because of one bad cop. And it's like, all of a sudden just changed for everybody. But, you know, the pendulum will continue to swing as it does. And, you know, you just gotta keep on 
keep it on and you hope that absolutely you know you you, you work for the people out there and that's and that's right. how you keep your head doing the right things and not you know going into those bad places where you're like everybody hates us no they actually don't hate us and they need us and let's just you know keep keep on going so we we do this and I we really appreciate that I mean we talked about your mindset and the, how you how you work for the people we we both think that's just amazing and one of the reasons we we love um we love the idea of talking with you I, I can't tell you how much I appreciate your time honestly I feel like I've taken so much of it but um I know I'm not gonna apologize for it because I feel like I'm walking away a better person so honestly yeah, I'm out. It's been a fun talk, so I'm not going to, I don't think any apologies are necessary. It's been great. And I really appreciate you guys having me, having me talk. Uh, I, thank you. I would love to hear from you a year from now, like to see like how much has changed in like. Without, in, wait, if anything is like, if this year's like last year, I, I mean, three months to six months might be. Yeah. Might be. Our dog years. Time. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. I mean. It, it would be interesting to see how it changes because I think a lot is going to happen in in Southern California and I think a lot is going to happen with like what's happening now with the pandemic and with vaccine coming out and I, I think that a lot is I think a lot is going to happen and we'll see what kind of shifts are on the horizon I guess. Any predictions? Oh god no I stay out of the prediction category. <laughs> we really yes. we really do appreciate it. I wanted you know um I wanted a female perspective, yet I wanted to just hear you talk about your job um, and your profession and not and be articulate. And so someone could hear a female voice talk about the job and be articulate, but it not all be about I'm a I'm a female. Like you talked and and it has nothing to do with a female on the job. We're talking about an amazing you know, detective that's doing her her job and her service to the community. So we appreciate it. Well, thank you. And thanks for having me. And I appreciate you ladies. <laughs> oh, thank, I, th I thank you for sharing your time. Thank you, yeah. thank oh, you for absolutely. making me a better person. I'm yes. honestly, I, I, I appreciate it so much. And I think that um, everything that Nako said about you is 100% true. I love that you're wearing a social distortion t-shirt. I think you're, it's, I think you're that. It's everywhere. actually not. It's, it's not. Oh, it looks like the guy it with says, the martini. It says social distancing. Oh, oh my God. God. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I love it. This is hysterical. I only saw the top hat and the martini. So right. Like, yeah. Oh, it. It, it, it's a good knockoff. It's a, yeah. it's I love a it. law enforcement officer's company. It's a, it's called Watch 3. And he makes some. Oh, that's great. His t-shirts. Well, but Mike yeah. Ness, I'm sure would love it. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Love it. Oh, well, thank God. you so much for sharing you. your time with us. Honestly, thank you so much. And as soon as um, we get the outro, O'Malley will upload it. And she's incredible. She that <laughs> thank you, guys. Thank you. Have a thank you, rest of your, uh, your day. <laughs> so. You guys do the same. Okay. Thank you. All stay right. healthy, stay sane. And thank you for everything you do for us. Honestly, thank you. You guys do the same. Okay. Thanks so much. All right. Bye. 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 Thank you, O'Malley. Oh, no problem. I appreciate everything you do. Honestly, I think you're amazing. She's beautiful. Oh my God, she's you're, gorgeous. I know, Stacey. She's just so, like confident and just, just everything about her just, um, yeah. what you would want to raise your kids to be, right? Like, 
boy, girl, it doesn't matter. Like everything, she encompasses everything that you want to raise a human being to be confident and intelligent, self-aware, empathetic. She's just like, it's, it's just who she has become and who she was, you know, right, right straight out of, you know, her mom's all the, she's just, she's just everything that you would hope to God you raise your kids to be. And uh, I am a much better person. I meant that sincerely. Yeah. I'm a much better I person. Know, I, after I, having her. I so love that. I you feel me. like I, I feel like I had like a hundred questions that were going to go to another hundred, but like at the same time, it's like when they, when somebody says something that's so interesting, you, you want to, you want to peel that back. You're like, they right. just said something. I, it doesn't matter what I wrote down. It's let's go over yeah. here. You know, let's dive deep. I just, I don't know. I want to, would like to have her, have her back on and like, maybe just like have focus sessions with her or something. Yeah. Because I mean, I just, I think what, what people are, are law enforcement and what she is in specifically with murder cases, it's I mean, I don't know. I don't know how people roll up right now with so much hate. And then and now you've got to do your job. And at least her community, she says, even the areas that people assume law enforcement is hated, that she's seen something different, which is nice to know. So. Well, I, I loved I loved listening to her. And I'm re- I, like you said, I'm looking forward to following up with her again, maybe even out a year, maybe six months. If she's I know. Before, like, just like yeah. a tenant thing. Because I just think having her in my life is better than not so yeah absolutely. but um well thank you for listening to this week's episode of the woe man pod um i am absolutely smitten with detective stacy i thought she was one of the um more in, in, uh, what's the word um incredible people that i've had the pleasure of meeting and i um i'm definitely going to incorporate a lot of things that she said into my everyday life and uh and thank you for listening if you want to follow me on social my twitter is at Anne McCarthy. And on Instagram, you can follow me at um, at Saint underscore Anne one hundred. And uh, what about you, O'Malley? Um, on Twitter, I am O'Malley underscore underscore. And on Instagram, ooh, I haven't used it in a minute. I'm at O'Malley underscore MC. Oh my gosh, I just realized I haven't used it. I'm like, well, what is my Instagram? And we are at Woman Pod um, um, on both, I believe. And um, I'm glad that you're feeling better. You have had quite the COVID run. COVID sucks. And I think anybody who can. Shingle sucks. Everything shingle sucks. sucks. COVID sucks. Like yeah. you, just, you just got ran through the. I, just, I got ran over and then dripped.
Should 